Lord Jesus, we sing to you and we praise you because you are the one who is blessed and who is beautiful to us. You're beautiful because you've bought us out of sin. You've rescued us from those things that have enslaved us and destroyed our lives. You are beautiful because you love us. You're not just a God far away. But you came near to us and you have shown us the love of God for us in yourself. And so we thank you. And you are beautiful also because you hear us. Even as we, even as we call out to you today, as we sing to you and as we pray to you, thank you that your ear is toward us and you hear your people. We confess that we are the thirsty, but you are the one who satisfies. We are the weak. But you are the strong. We are the fearful. But you're the one who protects us. So thank you for receiving poor sinners like us. Thank you for cleansing us from our sin. Your grace truly is amazing. And we thank you for leading us to this point. You are our good shepherd. And you have brought us, each one of us, through many circumstances to this day. And so we thank you for your guiding and leading and preserving care even to this moment. And we are asking that you would continue to lead us as your people. Defend us and teach us even this morning. We ask that you would show us more of yourself in your word now. And we pray that you would do all these things because we're asking these in your name and coming to the Father in your name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, first, some some words from me to you as our church family. Thank you. Thank you for loving and being patient with me for 14 years. (laughs) It's no small task. Pastor and author Mark Dever has written, Congregations need to be patient with young men in leadership as they make young man mistakes. I often tell churches not to be afraid of nominating a young lion cub. He may scratch the floors or damage the furniture, but if you're patient with him, you'll have a lion who loves you for life. And I'll be the first to admit that I have damaged some floors and scratched some furniture along the way. But thank you to you who have been here for all of these 14 years. Some of you were here long before we came, and you welcomed us with open arms. Liz and I are not the couple who entered this church. In some ways, as we look back, we are unrecognizable to ourselves. We're very different people, and that is due in large part to God's work through you in us. And we thank you. And thanks to those of you who have come more recently during our time here and have been willing to bear with me and follow my leadership even with the flaws that you have seen in me. Um, I'm grateful for your patience and your kindness. Thank you also for modeling joyful humility. Over the last few years especially, I think God has done a really sweet work in the members of our church. And there is a wonderful aroma, a wonderful smell around this place of 
sweet eagerness to follow the lead of your elders, to follow your leaders. And that has made leading you so much easier and more joyful. So thank you for uh, following the Holy Spirit in, in trusting Him, trusting the perfect shepherd, and in trusting imperfect shepherds who lead you. And finally, thank you for loving our family. I think of the prayers that you have offered, some of you, week after week, year after year. And it's been your labor of love over 14 years that only our Father knows. So much of it done in secret. I think of baby showers and many items that you gave to us as we brought children home. This is the only church that our kids have known. And you have loved them and welcomed them. I think of uh, the many meals we've had in your homes. Hospitality that you've shown to us. The welcome that you've given to us in that way. I think of financial gifts. Some of them anonymous. We didn't even know who they came from. I think of words of correction. Words which hurt in the moment. Words which stung, but which were for our good and which actually shaped us over these years. So I think of laughter and joy. I think of tears and sorrow. I think of praying and singing, just like we did this morning. And you have indeed been family to us. And I will echo Mark Dever's words that we will love you for life and into eternity. That's the beauty of this whole thing. But we're here to look into God's word this morning. So we're going to turn there. You can go ahead and turn to Psalm 121 if you haven't done that yet. And if you don't have a Bible, you are welcome to use one of the Bibles that's in the seat in front of you. It's on page 516, Psalm 121. My guess is that most of us have really vivid memories from childhood. And if you're still in childhood, someday you may look back on a particular memory That's very vivid in your mind. Uh, One of the most vivid and one of the earliest memories in my mind occurred on the side of a mountain in North Carolina. And we're going back to North Carolina. My dad and mom took my two brothers and me on a hike with a group of people. And we three boys were probably around four, five, six years old. We were coming back from a waterfall, and we had to climb up a really steep slope. I mean, sometimes it was, it was hands and feet getting up this the slope on the mountain. And we were, we were trying to get to a more level place where my dad had a motorcycle. He had a, a mountain bike that he would bring on these hikes in case somebody got hurt, and he had to haul them back out to the main camp area. I don't remember much about the way down to the waterfall, but on the way back up the climb, it started to rain. And so a hard climb got even harder and more treacherous. It's got, it got really slippery. And someone did actually take a fall and sprained their ankle, and they had to get that person up to my dad's motorcycle, and then he took them back to the camp. But he told us before he left, I'll come back. I'll come back and help you. Well, you can imagine the scene. Here's a young mom with three very little boys that she's trying to shepherd up the side of a mountain and keep them from falling. And the rest of the group were adults, and so they moved faster and soon disappeared from sight. The rain got heavier. We start having these rivulets gushing down 
the side of the mountain on us. And finally, my mom got so scared about trying to keep the three of us from falling that she just told us to stop and sit down. So here we are, four of us, perched on the side of a mountain with the pouring rain. We're soaked to the skin and shivering. And as she puts it, as my mom puts it, my youngest brother started to cry for dad. And then our middle brother started to cry for dad. And you get the picture. So, you, you know, some people have these out-of-body type of experiences where it's like you see yourself from the outside, and that's my, that's my image of this memory. Seeing my mom and my two brothers and me on the side of a mountain and wondering, how long are we going to be here? And I'm not sure how long we sat there, but I, I remember the relief when, you see, when I saw my dad slipping down the side of the mountain to get us and help us out. Mountains are treacherous, and journeys are unpredictable, and you need help to get safely through. Let's look at Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. This is God's word for us. What's this psalm about? Well, it's about a journey. We don't know exactly what the circumstances were behind this psalm, but it's apparent that this journey is filled with danger. The title of the psalm is a song of ascents, a song of going up. And it's possible that this was a psalm that uh, the Jews who came back from exile to their homeland in Israel, it's possible it's a song that they sang as they traveled to the capital city of Jerusalem to worship God. But whatever the circumstances, the traveler in this psalm is initially fearful and uncertain, and he doesn't know if he's going to get help all the way through his journey. Who is the psalm for? Well, it's for God's people. How do I know that? The title, the Lord, in all caps, is used five times through the psalm. And as many of you know, when when you see that title in our English version, it stands for God's personal name, Yahweh, his covenant name keeping name. The name that tells us he has made promises to his people and he's going to keep those promises. And so the Lord, Yahweh, is the one who keeps his people through their journey to their destination. There's two sections of the psalm that we'll look at today. Verses 1 and 2 recount the traveler's personal witness 
of God's help for him. And verses 3 through 8 are his assurance of God's protection to others. So we could put it this way. God is my helper. I have been kept. And God is your protector. You will be kept. So first, God is my helper. Verses 1 and 2. He begins by saying, I lift up my eyes to the hills. Now, that kind of a statement could initially sound like a pleasant observation on a morning stroll or an afternoon drive. I lift up my eyes to the hills. When we go to visit my parents up in Ohio uh, at the holidays, uh, we take Highway 25 for the first leg of our journey. And almost every time, as we head out of the Greenville area, on Highway 25, and we're headed toward the mountains, Liz will make some comment about, I just love the mountains. Is that what the psalmist is saying here? Far from it. Well, how do I know? Because what does he say right after this? He asks a question at the end of verse 1. From where does my help come? So it's apparent that as he looks at the mountains ahead of him, he doesn't seem, he doesn't see calm and serenity. He feels fear and anxiety. He's looking up and seeing all of the possibilities for harm and hurt. Mountains are treacherous. Hills hide danger. There's predators and beasts that prowl there. Robbers can lie in wait there. And this psalmist, this author may feel like he is walking into a trap. I have no idea what's coming, but I know I need help. Where is my help coming from? And his answer follows really quickly in verse 2. My help comes from Yahweh. Now, we'll see through this psalm that there are several of our words, several of our English words, which don't really capture the strength of some of the words in this text. My help The word help can sound pretty simple, pretty take it or leave it. You may think of a teacher's aide or daddy's little helper or mommy's little cook in the kitchen. These are people that we say are helpers, but they're not, if we're honest, they're not really essential to getting a job done. But that is not what the author is saying. Think Hero or champion cutting his way through enemies to carve a path for you to walk in. Think a shepherd carrying a lamb through the midst of threatening wolves. Apart from this kind of help, you ain't getting through. So the Lord is my aid, my assistance. The power that sustains me. And how does he describe this God who is his help? My help comes from the Lord. We've already mentioned this personal name. But this God 
that the author is calling out to is not some God who's distant, who I'm going to call out and see if maybe he'll show up to help me. No, I know he is committed to me. He is with me and he's promised to see me through. He is a personal helper. And he's also, at the end of verse 2, a powerful helper. My help comes from the Lord who, what? Made heaven and earth. So as I stare at the mountains in front of me, I know that the God who's helping me is the God who made those mountains. And he's the God who made all of the beasts who live in those mountains. He is powerful enough to do anything. He can protect me. And brothers and sisters, this is my story. This is my song. In my 14 years with you, I have faced dangers, but the God of heaven has been my champion. I can say that with full assurance as I look back. The dangers that I've faced are are of a variety of kinds, internal dangers, things from within, like weak and doubting faith, like self-righteousness and pride, like sexual temptation, like fear of what people think of me, like trying to live for other people's approval of me. I faced external dangers, things like accusations or friends walking away from Jesus or financial difficulties or family upheaval. And yet after all that, I can say, through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come, and it's grace that has brought me safe this far. So I know it's grace will lead me home. This God has been my helper. The creator of the universe has put his power on display in my little insignificant life. And he has shown that he is my personal helper and he is my powerful helper. So I can testify that I have been kept. And I can turn and say to you, you will be kept. And this is where the author shifts and begins to talk to you. And so we turn to the God who is your protector, verses 3 through 8. Probably as we read this, you couldn't help but notice the word that's repeated through these last six verses. Keep or keeper. Six times in six verses. The psalmist is emphasizing that this God is your keeper. Well, here again is another word where I think our English falls woefully short. Because what comes to your mind when you think of a keeper? A goalie in a soccer game? Uh, Who knows? There's all sorts of different nuances to keep. So what does he mean that Yahweh or the God of heaven is your keeper? Well, he helpfully gives us three different descriptions in these Last few verses, verses 3 and 4, verses 5 and 6, verses 7 and 8. So first, in verses 3 through 4, what does it mean that God is your keeper? 
He watches you so you will not fall. He watches you so you will not fall. Look at verse 3. He will not let your foot be moved. What does that mean? My foot moved? Well, if you remember the setting of this, that this could be a journey through very dangerous country, even journey on the steep slope of a mountain, then a misstep could be deadly. You need someone who can catch you, or better yet, somebody who can prevent you from falling and slipping in the first place. And that requires a keen and watchful eye. It requires someone whose gaze is going to be on you all the time and who is keeping a close eye on your steps. So it is good to know that in the next phrase, this one who is not going to let our foot be moved will never slumber. Your trail guide, your sentry, your fellow traveler is never going to grow tired or weary or sleepy. And the psalmist drives this home in verse 4 when he says, Behold, he who keeps Israel, he who keeps his people, his entire people, he will neither slumber nor sleep. If God is taking care of all of his loved ones, he can take care of you. If God watches over every single one of his people, he can watch over you. He keeps you. And it seems to me that these two verses address the possibility of personal failure. Personal failure. Why would I say that? Well, who's responsible if you slip on a trail? You are. It's your foot. You're supposed to be watching the trail. So if you slip and fall, you're the one who's responsible. But the problem is, we travelers on this journey, we know we get weak. We know we get tired. We know we fail. We know we slip and fall. You might say, I don't know how to raise my kids. I don't know how to lead them. My foot's going to slip. Or you might say, I don't know how to speak to my unbelieving neighbor about Jesus. I'm going to mess this thing up. Or you might say, I don't know how to navigate singleness. Nobody's told me how to do this, and I don't have the answers. My foot is going to slip. I'm going to fail. And brothers and sisters, that is why you need a protector who watches over you ceaselessly and who will never be distracted, who will never get tired, whose gaze will never shift away from you, but who is always watching you with an eye to keeping you. You will not be overthrown while this keeper watches you. Second, Verses 5 and 6, he guards you so you will not be harmed. He guards you so you will not be harmed. Verse 5, the Lord is your keeper. Okay, what's the next image? The Lord is your shade on your right hand. Shade. 
I, I would think we tend to think of shade as more of a convenience rather than a necessity. Think of yourself on the beach. You want to you stay out there longer with your kids, so you need some shade. Otherwise, you're going to get torched by the sun. No, you can go inside if you need to. Uh, Greenville recently added a new park downtown, Unity Park. And I remember hearing or reading somewhere that early on after this park was open, there were some complaints because there's no shade down there. It's just flat and the sun bakes the whole place. And the newly planted trees haven't grown up enough yet to provide any shade. There there weren't any overhangs over benches or around playground areas. So parents are out there sitting in the sun while their kids are playing and, and complaining because the heat and the sun is so strong. Shade is more of a convenience than it is a necessity for most of us in our lives today. But what about this psalmist? If he's on a journey through a desolate place with no hotels, no gas stations, no reprieve along the way, then he's facing legitimate danger from the sun striking him. He needs shade. And he adds at the end of verse 6, not only that the sun will not strike because the Lord is the shade, but also the moon will not strike by night. I think daytime dangers we can, we can relate to more easily. Okay, if I'm outside for a long time and I don't have water and I don't have shade, I got to be careful that I don't get dehydrated, experience sunstroke. There are legitimate dangers. But at nighttime, dangers, really? We can't relate very much because most of us are sleeping inside somewhere. We have a roof over our heads for most of us. Nighttime dangers are less familiar. But for this author, the bone-chilling cold of a moon-filled night or the haunting sounds of predators nearby or the fear of bandits and murderers creeping up while he's asleep would be real. So if the previous two verses describe the possibility of personal failure, I might fall, my feet might slip, these two verses, I think, describe the possibility of external danger. There are things around me which threaten me, which I cannot control. What might those be? Our days are exhausting. You might say, Why is a foreign balloon flying over our country? What kind of a threat does that pose to us, to me, to our future? I feel vulnerable and exposed. And I don't know what kind of protection we have. You might say, my boss is domineering and demanding. And I really feel like I need protection. I I need a shade. I need some margin. You might say, I've been slandered and attacked, and my reputation is in shambles. I need defense. You might say, I don't know how my finances are going to recover from this economy. I need deliverance. Our days are exhausting. But what about our nights? 
Our nights can be terrifying. In the dark, you might say, that's when despair or fear creeps in and just grips me and I cannot sleep. I need deliverance. Or you might say, there are terrible things that happen at night. Unspeakable things. I need deliverance. When your circumstances are too hard and too overwhelming, brothers and sisters, you need a protector who guards you, who shelters you, who shields you, and who will not allow you to be struck down. This protector keeps you so that you will not be overthrown. But here's where we need to ask a question. And maybe it's already nagging your mind as we're going through this. You might think, okay, Abe, it's saying God is my shade. And it's saying in the next verse, if you've looked ahead or you remember us reading it at the beginning, it's saying that God will keep me from all evil. I don't get that. Because when I look back on my life, I don't see that God was my shade. Or if he was, he sure let in a whole lot of bad radiation. Or I don't see how he, he protects me from all evil because there's been a whole lot of calamity that has crashed into my life. So how do we understand these statements? Are they just nice little Christian platitudes that we throw around to each other to try to make each other feel better? But they're not actually true? Or is it, a, is, it, is it a question of levels? Like, God says he's going to keep me from all evil, but, you know, he'll let the, the periodic stub toe sneak through because, you know, that's not a big deal. But, you know, there's levels of evil that he'll protect me of the bad stuff. Well, then, where does God draw the line? If he'll let in a stub toe, is he going to let you lose your job? Is he going to let you be abused? Is he going to let you die? The words are all comprehensive. He keeps you from all evil. And yet Christians, people who follow God, experience all kinds of evil. How do we reconcile the two? Turn with me to John 17. And keep your finger in Psalm 121 because we're going to shoot back there for just a moment. At the end. But John 17. Some of you know, as soon as I say the reference, you know where we're headed. You know what this is. Some of you may not know. What is John 17? In John 17, the Apostle John captures for us a prayer of Jesus for his loved ones. A prayer of Jesus for his men. His apostles. But it goes beyond his apostles to all of those who will believe on his name in the coming centuries and millennia. So this is Jesus' prayer for his people. And what does he pray? Look down at verse 10. John 17, verse 10. Jesus is talking to his father. And he says, Father, all mine are yours. All of my people are are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them and I am no longer in the world but they are in the world and I am coming to you holy father 
keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. Now listen to this. What does Jesus say? Verse 12, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I guarded them, my disciples, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, Judas, the betrayer, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now, Jesus says, I am coming to you, Father. What's he going to do? In, in a very short time, he's going to die on the cross, be buried, rise again, and then ascend to his Father. So, verse 13, now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they, my loved ones, may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world, look at this, the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. What does Jesus ask his father to do? He asks his heavenly father that the father would not allow his loved ones to be plucked out of his hand, that he would not allow his loved ones to be separated from his love. He would not allow his dearly loved people to be drawn away from the father by the evil one. Jesus says, while I was with them physically on this earth, I guarded my men. I kept them. I kept them in the name of the father. I kept their faith. I guarded them from the evil one who was trying to overthrow them. But now I'm coming back to the father and they're going to be left alone. So he's asking his father, would you protect them now? Would you guard them now? Would you keep them now? What did Jesus not ask for? Father, I don't ask that you would take them out of the world. What does that mean? Jesus' followers stay in the place where they experience hurt, harm, hate, evil. But they will never be separated from the love of the Father and the Son. They will always be guarded by the Spirit whom the Father has sent to care for and preserve his people. They will be guarded so that no danger will ever separate them from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. So what does the psalmist mean in Psalm 121 when he says, God will keep you from all evil? Here's number three. Verses seven and eight. He preserves you so you will get home. He says, the Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. God is going to preserve your being, your soul, your entire self. He's going to preserve you all the way through the dangers of your journey and all the way until you meet him yet again. And verse 8 says, it expands on this. What does it mean that you're going to keep my life? The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in. What does it mean that we go out and we come in? What do we go out for? What do we come in for? Oh, here's some examples. We go out to work. We come in to rest. We go out to learn. We come in to reflect. 
We go out to marry. We come in to love. We go out to give birth. We come in to nurture. We go out to run. We come in to sleep. We go out to do. We come in to remember. We go out to live. We come in to die. In every conceivable part of life, in every what, in every event of life, God will preserve you if you are his. And the last phrase puts the exclamation point on the whole psalm. The Lord will keep you from this time forth and forevermore. This is not just a God's going to get me into heaven kind of thing. And then let me walk around in the new creation on my own. No. God's preserving care extends into and through the forevermore of eternity. I love this. In Revelation chapter 7, the apostle John captures another uh, sweet vision for us. And he sees God's people in God's presence. And here's what he says. Here's how he describes what it's like for God's people to be with God, finally and fully. John says, Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne, God, will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. Here's this. Nor shall the sun strike them, nor any scorching heat. That sounds like Psalm 121. So the Father, in eternity, shelters his people with his presence, so that no danger strikes them anymore. And what else is going on? The lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them into springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So what is happening in eternity? The father shelters his people with his presence and guards them from all danger and the son leads his people with his guiding presence into a deeper knowledge of the love of God. So forever and ever we're on this journey, but it's a journey with no dangers, with no pain, with no harm, with no destruction. The love of the father and the son preserve us through the journey of this life, and then through the journey of eternity forever and ever. So if you are God's people, if you are one of his, you will never be separated from the love of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. He will preserve you forever and ever. So Heritage Bible Church, dear brothers and sisters, always remember to never forget. Always remember that you are being kept by the love of the Father through His Spirit for the Son. This God has been my help and He is your protector too. And I could say that with assurance no matter what lies ahead on your journey or ours. 
He watches you so you will not fall. He guards you so you will not be harmed. And he preserves you so you will get all the way home. Let's pray. Father, this is a beautiful and wonderful mystery to us. That you are keeping us right now for your Son. And that you will preserve us forever and ever with your Son. Thank you for this assurance. Thank you that because of our Savior, we can know that this is true. And so I pray for these dear saints, these brothers and sisters. Would you cause your face to shine upon them? Would you lift up the light of your countenance upon them? And would you give them your peace? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.